Well, good evening. Welcome tonight to our study of Revelation. Good to see everybody. And it's always a good time together whenever we can come and study God's Word together. And it's been especially a good series as we looked at Revelation. This is our 22nd week into it. And by the time we're over with, we will be well past the six-month mark that we've been studying Revelation. So a lot there. And uh, we're only going, to go, only going to look at six verses tonight of chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles turned there, there are 14 verses in chapter 20, but I want to save the last half for a session of its own because it has to do with the final judgment, and I want to talk about that in detail. And tonight, talk about the millennium in detail. So we're glad that you're here. Those of you who've joined us online, we welcome you as well. Every Wednesday night, we have people from all over the place, and so we're glad that you join us wherever you are and however you may be joining us this evening. Good to see you tonight here in person as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together tonight to study your word. I thank you that Jesus is victorious. And God, I just thank you that his uh, millennial reign will come. We don't understand all that, we, that there is to know. But Lord, what we do understand is good, knowing that it will be a season of righteousness and of peace where Jesus Christ reigns. And so we thank you for that. God, thank you tonight for the salvation that you've given us in Christ. And I pray that wherever people are joining us, and God, those in the, in the worship center tonight as well, that you'll bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. First of all, before we get started, I want to remind you of one of our first principles that we studied the very first uh, night in looking at Revelation. I reminded you, remember, exegesis, not eisegesis. And I've talked about that a lot because it's so important. All of Scripture, not just Revelation, but especially Revelation, exegesis, remember, is taking what's in the passage. It means to draw out. And so exegesis is drawing out what's in there. Eisegesis is reading into something that's not in there. Whenever you begin to eisegete a passage, so you get into trouble. You can make the Bible say things that ne it was never meant to say, and it's not saying, and really what you're ascribing is untruth to truth. So eisegesis is very dangerous. Uh, exegesis is, uh, is what we should do. Having said that, Revelation 20 tonight is one of the passages where you see a lot of eisegesis taking place. Uh, you'll read books, you'll hear preachers, you'll go on the internet, you'll just if you click on Revelation uh, study or the millennium, you're going to see a lot of eisegesis, a lot of people reading into what they think it's going to be like when in reality there are only six verses in all of Revelation that tells us about the millennium. Now we're going to go to some Old Testament passages tonight as well, but, but there's a lot there we just don't know. Uh, because Revelation itself, the, the, the exegesis does not give us a lot of details. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at some Old Testament passages, see if it, they shed light on the millennium. Uh, and so I just want to warn you again, because so many people eisegete when it comes to chapter 20 of Revelation. And remember again, we're never going to understand everything there is to know about Revelation. We just won't. I, I believe that's the reason, the way, the way God designed it, to be honest with you. I, I believe that, that God designed it that way. God left too much of it without detail for us where we'll never understand all of it. There, now, there are some people who they, they think they have it all figured out. Um, and, and there's some in every church. 
Uh, I've got Revelation figured out. Pastor, I've studied and studied and studied for years. And they read a book or they listen to a guy on the internet and they've got it all figured out. And if you meet somebody like that, remember, run the other way as fast as you can because nobody has it all figured out. So having said that, let's get started and try to look at the millennium. And so look at letter A on your outline, how we got here. Let me just kind of bring us the last couple of weeks to where we are tonight. If you remember, John looked into heaven and saw several things, but he saw Jesus unroll the scrolls and judgments upon the earth began, that seven-year tribulation of judgments. Well, the seven-year tribulation was about to end when the nations surround Jerusalem in the Battle of Armageddon. Jerusalem is just about teetering on collapsing when Jesus returns to earth for the second time, his second coming. And we talked about that last Wednesday night. With the word of his mouth, he obliterates and vaporizes the enemies. So, he is victorious, battle of Armageddon is won, and the very next thing that happens is... He now reigns, Jesus now reigns on earth for 1,000 years in what is called the millennium. So that's where we are tonight. That's how we got there. And that's where we start is chapter 20, the millennium, the 1,000-year reign. So let her be on your outline. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. The millennium breaks forth. Now, before we start actually looking at verse 1, several uh, things I want to say as far as uh, maybe background to the millennium to make it hopefully be easily, more easily understood for you. Immediately after the second coming of Jesus, immediately after that, the 1,000-year reign of Christ begins. Is that a reign in heaven or is it on earth? It's on earth. So it's pretty clear from Scripture, Jesus is going to reign in a theocracy here on earth. Now, right now, we have a democracy. Many nations have democracies, government by the people. And there are critics of Christianity today that say, oh, you Christians want to make everything a theocracy. Well, a theocracy is coming. It's going to get here. And Jesus is going to reign over the world in a theocracy, meaning a rule by God rather than a rule by the people. Now, this is called the millennium. The word millennium is a Latin word, mil, meaning 1,000, annum, meaning years. So, millennium literally means 1,000 years. And so, that's, uh, that's the, the, what the word millennium means. Now, is it going to be a literal reign or a physical reign of Jesus on the earth? There are some who believe, well, this is symbolic, and he's not really physically going to be here for 1,000 years. It's going to be like a reign in heaven for 1,000 years. That's what some people say. But there's no need not to take it literally. You remember one of the principles we talked about early in our study? If a passage can be taken literally, take it literally. If it's obviously not literal, then it's symbolic. 
there's no reason for us to make this a symbolic rain. No reason. So it's most likely a, a physical reign of Christ, a literal reign of Christ. Now, probably the most respected Bible scholar who does not believe it's literal is, probably, is Leon Morris, probably. And Leon Morris says he thinks it's symbolic. It's not going to be a literal reign of Christ. And, and, and he said the reasoning for it is that it's a heavenly or a spiritual reign. Uh, he somehow takes the cube of ten and gets a thousand and... I, I don't know. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. He says 10 is the number of perfection. It's really not 12 is the number of perfection. But 12 doesn't divide into 1,000 real easily. And so uh, I, I think most Bible scholars believe it is a literal reign. Many of the other numbers in Revelation are literal. Um, 144,000 people saved. That's a literal number. Uh, seven years, tribulation. That's, that's a literal number. Three and a half years, uh, the 42 months, the 1,260 days, those are all literal. So, so why come to the 1,000-year reign of Christ and make it symbolic? There's really no need to. So most Bible scholars will tell you that they believe it is literal. It's not just something going on in heaven we can't see. It's going to be something on earth where Jesus' rule rules the world for 1,000 years after he returns. Now, even though Revelation doesn't tell us much about the millennium, some other passages in the Bible do. There are only six verses of Revelation that talk about it, but there are over 400 verses other places in 20 different passages that seem to be talking about the millennial reign of Christ. Those are found in uh, Judges, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and then in the New Testament, Matthew, Acts, and Romans all have passages that seem to indicate that they're talking about a, a, a uh, millennial reign of Christ here on earth. So, just because it's only six verses in Revelation doesn't mean it's not going to be a, a major part of what happens when Christ comes back. Now, I've, I've toyed with the best way to present this tonight because it gets confusing. And, and here's what I think is going to be the best way. Let me give you a consensus of what it looks like the Bible describes as the millennium. And then after I give you a consensus sketch, let's go back and look at the six verses. Thought about looking at six verses first, but I think it's going to make more sense if I give you a composite sketch of all the passages in the Bible, what it appears to be saying, and then we'll go back and look at the six verses. I think it will make much more sense in that way. Now, John didn't give us very much information what the millennial kingdom will look like. But let's take some passages from other uh, some notes from other passages and see. It appears that the millennium is going to be a 1,000-year reign of Jesus here on earth, and he's going to establish himself as the king of the world. He is going to be the unquestioned leader of the world. It's going to be a time much like now. You see people living, people will be marrying, people will be having jobs the world's going to continue on. Whenever he comes back at the second coming, the world doesn't end. 
the world continues for another 1,000 years. So Jesus is going to establish himself as the king of the world, primarily the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be the capital for the world in what is called a theocracy, where he rules the entire world. He will sit on what's called the throne of David. He will fulfill God's promises to Israel. A lot of people wonder, Pastor, how does, how does Israel fit back into the end times? It appears to be during the millennium that God fulfills his promises he made all the way back in Genesis to the Israelites. Appears this is going to be the time it happens. He will fulfill at that time the Abrahamic covenant where, you remember the Abrahamic covenant God told that, that Israel will be a blessing to the entire world? When's, when's that going to happen? Well, it's sort of happened already if you look at the contributions Jews have made to science and technology and finance and all that. So some say, well, that's it. But others say, no, no, it's going to be where they literally are a blessing as a nation to the entire world. And so a lot of people think it will happen during this this millennial reign. The world will still be divided into nations, but Israel is going to be the world's superpower. They are going to be the world power. The world will continue as we know it. You say, well, who's going to be here? Well, the survivors of the tribulation. They will marry, they will have children, they'll have jobs. But the times are going to be different because Satan will be bound. He'll not be able to influence the earth. Imagine a world where he will not be able to influence the world. He's bound. We're going to see that in verse 1. So without him here, it'll be a time of peace worldwide. It will be 1,000 years of no wars, no conflicts, no satanic influence. Now, will we still be under the curse? Yeah. Will we people still be sinful? Uh, yeah. Because it's not heaven yet. It's not the new heaven and the new earth. That doesn't come till verse 21, chapter 21. So there's a time frame between his second coming, verse 19, chapter 19, his the heaven, chapter 21, where chapter 20, there's a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth that's peace, that's righteousness, and not be perfect, and not be sinless, <clears throat> but it will be a time of peace and righteousness. A lot of people believe this millennial period will be a preview of heaven. It's not heaven, but it will be a preview of heaven. If you look at Isaiah, it will be a time of what life would have looked like if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. According to Isaiah 11, animals and humans will live in peace with one another. Animals and humans will get along. Animals and animals will get along. Believers will worship at a new temple that's going to be constructed in Israel again. And all Jews will come back within the nation's borders and they will flourish, according to Isaiah 11, according to Genesis 17. The martyrs, those that were killed for the faith during the tribulation, will rule over the nations. They're going to be the national, national leaders. 
and they're going to live in peace. And then at the end of the 1,000-year reign will be the final judgment. World will end, final judgment, and then there will be heaven and hell. Now, despite the godly examples of people for 1,000 years, despite there being peace in the kingdom, despite the presence of Christ here, not everybody's going to be saved. There will be those children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren who are born to possibly believers who will not receive Christ during this time. We'll talk next week about who we feel like those will wind up being because there's a theory. Let me read to you some Old Testament verses that seem to describe this millennial period. Habakkuk 2.14 says, quote, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Zechariah 14.9 says, most likely of the millennium, the Lord will be the king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name will be the only name. There will be no religions. There will just be Jesus. Here's what Ezekiel 47 says, verses 8 through 12. A river will flow down to the Dead Sea, turning the Dead Sea into a paradise. Now, remember the Dead Sea today is not a paradise. It has no life in it. It's all salt water, the saltiest place on the planet. Nothing grows in it. A few little microorganisms, but no fish. But this says the Dead Sea during the millennial rain will turn into fresh water and people will fish on its banks. Listen to verse, verse, chapter 47. A river will flow down to the Dead Sea, turning into a paradise. The salty water will turn fresh. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. Fishermen will stand along the shore. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on the banks of the Dead Sea. Well, that's, if you've ever been there, it's not like that. Right now. It's tar pits all around it that are sinkholes. And it's very dead. Our guide, the last time we were there, told us there has been discovered um, underneath the city of Jerusalem freshwater springs that, of course, Jerusalem's up here, Dead Sea's down here, so if they were to break forth, would flow into the Dead Sea. Many freshwater springs have been uncovered underneath Jerusalem. I did know back in 2015, Ben-Gurion University sent divers into the Dead Sea. And at the bottom of the Dead Sea floor, they've uncovered craters with fresh water in it. At the bottom of the Dead Sea now. So you see some things of, of how Scripture is going to be fulfilled this time of Isaiah 47. Listen to Zechariah chapter 8 about the millennium. Once again... Men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with a cane in their hand because of their age. And the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there again. Zechariah 8, verses 4 and 5. And listen to this from Isaiah 65. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives only a few days. But an old man who does not live out his years, the one who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere child. 
They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not labor in vain. They will bear children, not to doom and misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. They will neither harm or destroy anyone on all of my holy mountain. Isaiah 65, that's 18 through 25. So you see here a picture of time during the millennium where Christ will rule on earth and it will be a time of peace and righteousness on earth. Will we be here or not? That's a question we'll look at at the end. Now, let's turn to the passage itself and see what it says. So that's a consensus of what most theologians feel like is going to happen. Now, before we get to the verses, right quick, let me talk, talk about this just for a moment. Uh, the interpretations of Revelation that people have all revolve around the millennium. There's premillennium, there's postmillennium, and there's millennial. And let me explain the difference to you. I'll just do it very quickly. There's no need to spend a lot of time on this. But just to let you know, whenever you study Revelation, you're going to hear those terms just to let you know what they mean. Premillennial are those people that believe that Jesus will return before the millennium begins. Uh, obviously, that's what the text looks like. I'm premillennialist because it looks like from the text that Jesus will return and premillennium and then the millennium begins. But in the 300s A.D., a man by the name of Tychonius started teaching about all millennialism. Now, the Greek prefix a, ah, means none or not or no. So, all millennial means no millennial. And he believed and started teaching that there is no physical reign of Christ here on earth, it's a spiritual reign, and it really happened back in scriptural days, so it doesn't apply to us. So all millennialists today believe there is no millennium, and what's in Revelation was primarily written for them, not for us. Well, I disagree. I think scripture is written for us as well. And then the post-millennialism developed much later after amillennialism, and the belief that post-millennium is that Jesus will come back at the end of the millennial reign. And they believe that the world will get better and better and better and better until finally you have peace on earth and righteousness everywhere. And at the end of that time, Christ returns. After the first two world wars, which were to be the wars to end all wars, remember that? A lot of post-millennia say, aha, that's it. All the world wars have solved the world's problems and the world's going to get better and better now until Christ comes back. And now there aren't very many post-millennialists out there because it's very obvious the world is not getting better and better. But a lot of them believe people believe that for a while. So today, really the only respected Bible scholars are either premillennial or amillennial. And so that's that's pretty well how people interpret Revelation. I just wanted to mention that. I, I am premillennialist. I think it follows Scripture closest. Now let's look at verse 1. 
John said, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Stop there for a moment. We know that the millennium follows the second coming because remember chapter 19 ended with Jesus coming back. And verse 20 says, then it's a chronological sequence. So I believe for that reason in the Greek syntax, the, the millennial happens after Christ comes back, premillennial. Then an angel, we're not told the name, Gabriel, Michael, we don't know, came down from heaven. He had a key in his hand, and the key was to the bottomless pit. Now, do you remember the bottomless pit back in Revelation 11? It's called the abyss. It's the Greek word abyssos. The word abyss or bottomless pit, that was the super maximum prison where the worst of the demons were kept. Remember that? So he's got a key to the super maximum prison where the worst of the demons were and still are. And so he's got a, he's got a key to it. And he's holding a great chain. Verse 2. And this angel seized the dragon, that's Satan, that ancient serpent who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, let's stop there for a moment. He seized the the dragon. The dragon's the most common name used in in, in Revelation for for, for Satan, the dragon. He's also called the ancient serpent, according to this verse. He's also called um, uh, the devil, which the word means slanderer. And he's also called Satan, word means adversary. So he's, he's called all of those, and he bound him for a thousand years in this abyss. Now, there were several things I noticed, verse 2. I want to mention those to you before we go on. First thing I noticed was Satan was previously kicked out of heaven. You remember that? Now he's kicked off the earth. He was kicked out of heaven before the world began. Ezekiel tells us that Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning from the sky. And so it happened before the world began. He rebelled against God in heaven. He was kicked out of heaven. When 30 of the angels went with him, they became demons. And now he's kicked off the earth. Second thing I noticed was Satan was defeated at the cross, but he was not bound where he couldn't affect anybody until now. So Jesus defeated him at the cross, but he's still, ha- he's still active. Now he's bound where he can't even be active. Here's something else I noticed. Did you notice that Satan tried to imprison Jesus in a tomb after his death? Didn't work. But God has no problem entombing Satan. Has no problem imprisoning him. Dr. Barnhouse says, our prayers don't bind Satan. He's not bound until now, until until chapter 20. We're never commanded to bind Satan we're commanded to resist him in James. So, all these prayers, I'll bind Satan. He's not bound until Revelation 20. Now, you can resist him. 
and he'll flee from you, according to Scripture, according to James. But we're not commanded to bind him. God will bind him when the time comes. Notice something else about this. Notice that all it took for Satan to be grabbed, thrown into a prison, key locked up, and left was an angel. God didn't do it. Jesus didn't do it. An angel did it. So that shows me that Satan is not as powerful as you think he is. He's more powerful than you and me. But in Christ, he's not more powerful than we are. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And so a lot of people have this picture up there, oh, there's good and there's evil and they're fighting back and forth. And oh, it's somebody wins one day and then somebody wins the next day and it's just a battle. This doesn't say that Jesus and Satan went to this long battle and they wrestled and finally Jesus won. He's out of breath and he shuts him in the prison and Jesus goes, oh, whew, that was tough. No. He just sends an assistant, an angel, and that's all it takes. So God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit are all way, way more powerful than Satan. In fact, they just send somebody else to do it. And the angel is the one that takes and binds him up. So God could have stopped Satan at any moment. Folks, he could stop him right now. There's a reason he has allowed the enemy still to be loose. He could have bound him already, and he will. But he doesn't until verse 2. Notice verse 2. It says, bound him there for a thousand years in this abyss. Verse 3. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that... He must be released for a little while. Now, some fascinating things in that, in that verse. Let's look at them right quick. Verse 3. It says that the angel threw Satan into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over. Notice the verbs, the powerful verbs. It's like he's grabbing him and just throwing him in there, and that's it. The powerful verbs that are used there. But here's the word that really caught my eye. Verse 3. Threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it why is that important because all through the new testament whenever you're saved we're told you are sealed with the holy spirit of promise meaning nothing's going to break that seal which means your salvation is sure and secure Somebody would have to be more powerful than God to break the seal to make you lost again. Nobody's powerful enough. Not even you. Well, I can do some things to make me not saved again. You're not that powerful. Don't flatter yourself. You're not. You can't make yourself lost again. You are sealed. And now it says in verse 3, Satan is sealed where he can't get out. Is it the same word? Yes. Sfragizo, the exact same 
word for your salvation being sealed, the same word for his fate being sealed. So, listen to this. You can no more be lost again once you're saved than the devil can escape the pit. Same ceiling. You can no longer be lost any more than he can get out. He can't. So your salvation is secure in Christ. Now, there's no mention of suffering. Did you notice that? doesn't say he is thrown there to suffer. He's only confined. His suffering hasn't started yet. Now, you remember earlier in Revelation, there was an unholy trinity, right? There was the false prophet. There was the Antichrist. And there was the devil. According to Revelation 19, 20, the Antichrist and false prophet, they are already in the lake of fire. But Satan's not there yet. He's going to end up there. He's not there yet. He's in the abyss. So no suffering for now, but he is separated from his accomplices. False prophet, the Antichrist, they're in, they're in the burning sulfur, lake of sulfur, but he is in the abyss, but he will not have access to earth. Notice the last part of verse 3. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Folks, that's what had been happening. That's what's happening in the world right now. The nations are deceived by Satan. That's where we are right now. That's why the world is like it is. They are being deceived. And during the millennial reign, they will be deceived no more. So there will be peace and there will be righteousness and there will be Jesus. And everybody will realize, well, there's not any other religion but Christ. But now he deceives the world. So you have all kind of things going on in our culture and all these kind of belief systems in our culture. And all these people saying, oh, there are many ways to, to heaven. No, you're hearing all that now because nations are deceived by him. But at that time, he will not deceive any longer. Now let's go to letter C on your outline. Let's look at verses 4 through 6, the last three verses. Satan, um, other saints are resurrected to reign with Christ. Verse 4. Then, like it's a new scene, it's like you get the picture of John, it's like seeing, it's like I see a, a little a video clip here and a video clip here, video clip and video clip, scenes of, of the last. So he sees the millennial and, and millennium and he sees Satan being bound and now the, the scene shifts, another video starts, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, hold on. We've got questions, don't we? What's going on here in verse 4? He sees thrones plural. So who had the authority to sit on these thrones to be judges during the millennium? 
We know that Jesus is king over the world, but who are the nation's rulers? Who are the judges? Who will be the head of, head of the nations? Well, it's those who had died during the tribulation, did not take the mark of the beast. They will be resurrected, and they will be the ones. Really? Who are these? Well, most, some say the 24 elders. Some say it's the representatives of the seven Asian churches of Asia Minor. That's all I said, Jesus. That's reading in. If you read the passage, it's those who did not take the mark of the beast and died for their faith during the tribulation. They're going to be resurrected, and they will be the ones who rule. Now, it says those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Christ, this does appear to be a bodily resurrection. All millennials say, oh, no, it's, a, it's spiritual. It's inward. It's going on in heaven. But evidently, they were the ones that died during the tribulation, went to heaven, and then were counted as worthy to come back to earth and serve as judges under Christ. Now look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So we know it's not a resurrection for everybody. It's believers. It says this is the first resurrection. So first resurrection. What does he mean first resurrection? Well, some commentators say that those are the ones that were saved in the tribulation and killed like we talked about. Others say it's the Old Testament saints. I'm always asked the question, how were people saved in the Old Testament? And I answer the same way we are. They were looking ahead to the Messiah to come. We look back at the Messiah who came. They looked ahead to the Messiah to come, placed their faith and trust in the Messiah to come, that God will fulfill his promise. I wasn't here when Jesus died either. I look back on 2,000 years ago, uh, and I, I have faith that Jesus is the Messiah. They're sa saved the same way. But some people believe, well, the Old Testament saints are different. They somehow are going to have to come under the blood of Christ a little differently than or otherwise they wouldn't get to go to heaven. And so you'll see all the way through here, some people interpreting, oh, that's the saints of the Old Testament. Now they finally get to be saved. But we're never really told that in the text. Others say it's a singular event, like Christians will, will, will go through the tribulation. Others say, you know, it's a series of events, rapture, tribulation, second coming. And then the saints will rule. Some say it's a series of events. Now, there are, this, is, this says verse 5, there, this is the first resurrection. There are, there seems to be several different resurrections that take place in the Bible. Let, let me cover those for you. Just based on Scripture alone. First resurrection is Jesus, right? He resurrected on the third day after he was crucified. Second resurrection was the saints in the cemetery around Jerusalem when Jesus resurrected. Remember that? Remember we're told in one of the Gospels, Matthew 27, 52, that whenever Jesus resurrected, that some of the cemetery graves opened up and they walked around town. Remember that? That's the second resurrection. 
third resurrection appears to be uh, when two witnesses were slain in the streets during the tribulation. Remember that? Remember that we talked early in our study that two witnesses, some said be Moses and Elijah, all the kind of theories, Enoch and, and Elijah because they never died, all these theories as to who it was. But, but there will be two witnesses that preach boldly in the streets during the tribulation and they're killed and they lie there for several days and then they, they're resurrected. So that's, the, that's the, the next resurrection. And, and then we have the tribulation martyrs, those who died for the faith at the beginning of the millennium right here. That's the next resurrection. And then the next resurrection will be chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, where the saints who died during the millennium will be resurrected. And then there will be, the, of course, the final resurrection. So it looks like there's going to be several different kinds of resurrections now there are some people say well no preacher there are only two the resurrection to, the, to life and the resurrection those that will be going, going to hell the resurrection to be judged well maybe but it appears scripture tells us about several different resurrections that have already taken place and will take place so he says this is the first resurrection verse 6 blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years now what's the second death the, the word phrase second death is mentioned several times in the Bible and, and usually it refers to like you die first time physically, the second time you die spiritually. If a person is lost, never received Jesus as Savior, and they, die, and they die, they've died physically, but they've also died spiritually. So that's the second death. So those of us who are saved, born again believers in Jesus, we will die physically, but will not die the second death. That is, that's a spiritual death because we live in the, second, in, in, the, in the afterlife. So the second death seems to refer to the death of the body and the soul that will send a person to hell. So over such, the second death has no power. So if you're in Christ, you're resurrected to life, the second death will not touch you. You will live eternally. But what about priests? They will be priests, it says, of God. If we're living in the millennium and it's a 1,000-year reign of peace and righteousness, why do we need priests? A priest is a go-between between God and you. Why do we need priests? And that's an answer I haven't seen any commentators answer. A question I've never seen commentators answer. We don't know. We don't know why. We do know that priests had unlimited access to God. We do know that priests enjoyed intimate fellowship with God. Is he referring to that and just using priest as a symbol? We don't know. Or maybe there will be some kind of priestly duty here in the millennium. We don't know. That's one of the questions we really just have to say we don't know. Now, I'll, I'll get a lot of emails tonight from people who got it figured out. Oh, preacher, you need to listen to this so-and-so guy online. Here's who the priests are. But to be honest, we, we really don't know. Now. Jesus knows a whole lot more than we do. He's small enough so we can understand salvation. But he's big enough 
that we don't know everything. And he's great enough to be worshipped. And that's how I leave it. A lot of theories out there in the millennium. ton of them. If you just Google what's the millennium about, you're going to see a lot of theories. But folks, just to be honest, that's the only six verses we're given in Revelation. That's the only thing we can exegete those six verses. And even then, we still have questions. We do know this. I believe we know it's a literal physical reign after Jesus comes back. We know that from the text. And I believe we know that Jesus will reign on earth in a peaceful, righteous kingdom where Satan is bound. Now, next Wednesday night, he's let out of the abyss. And whenever he does, gets out, he does something interesting as one last ditch effort to rule, but it doesn't work. We'll talk about it next Wednesday night. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to see me afterwards. Email me. Be glad to any question. Be glad to answer those as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Even though there's a lot we don't understand, Lord, there's a lot we do understand. Lord, as a result of that, we know enough to know that Jesus is Lord. You have all power. You're going to reign and rule victoriously. And those of us who are your children will reign with you. We know that. And we thank you for that tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.